Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in April of 2017. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. Costas Lapavistas. Dr. Lapavitsas earned his master's from the London School of Economics and his PhD from Burbeck University of London. He has taught at the New School and the School of Oriental and African Studies. He is known as a sharp critic of Western financial capitalism. He has worked as a regular columnist for The Guardian and founded Research, Money, and Finance, a collective of political economists who focus on money, finance, and the two's intersection with capitalism. In 2015, he was elected to the Greek Parliament as a member of the Syriza Party in order to help Greece regain its footing after the Greek debt crisis. He is the author of numerous books, including Crisis in the Eurozone, Profiting Without Producing, and The Left Case Against the EU. Dr. Lepovitsos joined us to discuss how leaving the EU's monetary union could transform the Greek economy, why financialization harms people in the long run, and why Germany's wages remain stagnant despite its economic dynamism. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. I'm going to cover all of your works. They're quite good. I enjoyed the read. Uh, I don't know if you're, uh, you're aware of the work of Seymour Melman. He'd have been an economist 30 years ago he, who wrote Profits Without Production. I'm aware of the title, yes. Okay, okay. So the title is, is, yes. uh, is, very, is very similar to that. But uh, to get started, Yanis um, apparently has come out with a manifesto. Are you aware of the DM25 manifesto? Of course I am aware. Okay, okay. Now, during the time of troubles with Syriza and the, and, and, the, and the Germans, of course, we were very interested in that whole process. Uh, we interviewed uh, Giannis, we interviewed uh, uh, Jamie Galbraith, and uh, so we're friends of the Greek people here, and we're very much interested in what goes on there. And we, of course, in correspondence with Giannis, we were in favor of an exit, a Grexit. Of right. course, he's not in favor of that. And, uh, and uh, I want to ask you, if we'll go into the interview, uh, what do you think? Uh, I think you are a Grexit proponent, and if that's the case, uh, uh, why? And, uh, and what is the state of Greece today, and what, what do you think can be done right now for Greece? And then we'll move into the theory and so forth. Go ahead. I have been one of the most vocal people in favor of Grexit from the beginning. Of a, rather, I wouldn't call it Grexit because this is what the lenders call it and powerful countries in Europe, Germany and so on. I would call it exiting the monetary union. I've been a vocal supporter of that since 2010. In my judgment, Greece still needs and it needed then to default on its debt and to um, change its currency back to national currency. These are two fundamental steps that would allow it to put its economy down a different path. As long as it follows current policies, and as long as it belongs to the monetary union, it stands no chance. And uh, my differences with uh, Syriza in its early 
incarnation, and I was a member of parliament for mm-hmm. Syriza. I know that, I know that. It was precisely over this point. Um, I and uh, several others in Syriza argued that it is impossible to uh, follow a radical program that would change the path of the country, significant change, uh, social and economic, without breaking with the monetary union. Clear, clear. And, and we were proven uh, right because the monetary union is basically not just the money we carry in our pockets, but a very rigid and powerful set of institutions that control ultimately uh, the provision of liquidity to the banking system, and therefore they give power to the lenders to throttle you. So um, if you want to follow a different path, step number one, right, get that. Let, 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 let me comment on that. Of course, I, I think the uh, stumbling block, of course, was the Greek people somehow feel that the Greeks themselves cannot manage their own currency. Uh, and I don't know why they would have that uh, uh, feeling. It seems that in any polls and any surveys, although, you know, the Greek people supported Syriza, they, they, the vote was a brilliant vote in basically uh, uh, saying to the Germans, hey, enough, enough. But the Greeks can't get themselves to weed, the, weed themselves onto a, their own national currency. And I wondered if you had any insight as to why that's so. I have thought long and hard about that, because it is in some ways the greatest mystery. Working out the path of the country, if it followed the bailout strategies, was not a particularly difficult thing. Uh, any run-of-the-mill economist would have worked it out. Many people did, and indeed the disaster came out of it. This was obvious. The real problem, and also it, it's easy to see that in the medium and long term, Greece would be better off with national currency that would allow it to follow. This is, this is, in some ways, for most economists, this is trivial. The problem, the problem is, of course, the short-term costs of the transition. That's one problem. And it's a serious problem, technical in other ways. And of course, the problem is more than that. It's a problem of social interests, powerful social interests, and, and, and ideology. And if I may say, we must start with the social and economic interests and the ideology and then go to the short-term problems. The banks in Greece were four square for the euro. They've never changed their minds. They are the strongest supporters uh, of this approach, remaining where we are, and they're very, very powerful uh, politically. And so were big businesses, a a range of big businesses who deal with um, the European markets and do a lot of their business in Euro anyway. Uh, And they were afraid of the implications of uh, devaluation and so on, because Greek industry has shrunk and it leaks abroad, it imports heavily. So big businesses, to a certain extent, were for the euro. So there were strong economic interests. But even more important than that was, of course, ideological factors. The powerful economic interests created the sense of um, fear, threat, uh, imminent disaster if uh, the country changed its currency. And what was very important for people, ordinary people there, was the fear of losing their savings the fear of economic disaster and the fear of losing their own identity as Europeans. Uh, They were threatened with isolation and everything else. This created a very potent mix, very potent mix that was, um, you know, 
proposed all the time from the top and put across. I'm glad to report that things have changed a bit and uh, people are far more prepared to um, listen to that mm, dramatic change in this respect. At least people are prepared to listen to other arguments now. I'm not suggesting that they are ready to... Um, you know, there's a majority in favor of national currency, there's a strong current, and more important than that, people are prepared to listen. This is a major change, major. Right. Let me just comment on that, because the, the, one, the one great thing from this tragedy is I think the whole world became aware of just what the uh, uh, cutting edge of neoliberalism really looks like. In other words, the Greeks, in a way, took a stand that even though they lost this particular battle, uh, made the world aware of really what's, what's behind and what's going on. And uh, whether they, they brought things to a head, I mean, we have, uh, we have Trump in the United States, uh, I don't know. But I'm going to switch, <clears throat> I'm going to switch focus because you're, you're an economist that's reading your works, that understands the theory, understands the, uh, the politics. And so I'm going, to take, I'm going to take the position contrary to you of I'm the hegemon. I'm, I'm the American establishment. And regardless of whether Trump's a president or whatever, uh, I'm looking back to American foreign policy almost for 100 years. And basically, after the two world wars, we decided that um, autarky or development of major powers on their own without, uh, without reference to the other major powers would lead to trouble, would lead to war. So we set up the Bretton Woods system and we parceled out capitalism to three centers. We have an Asian center, we have a European center, we have our own center. And so we run it and, and we've made Germany the lead, the lead pony in this, situ in this situation. Uh, the fact that uh, Germany is really a junior hegemon in Europe, not surprising to us. And in fact, we, uh, we expected it. But one of the things I suppose we didn't expect, we didn't expect monopoly capitalism to be one that constantly would grind down effective demand simply because of the increase in monopoly. And we're running into this systemic problem where we can't generate effective demand and now we're forced to move more and more to financialize uh, the world and the economy, which is basically a specialty of yours. Now, I have, I have a dilemma here. I'm, uh, I'm willing to hold on to this policy because I don't think you or, 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 or progressives around the world can, can come up with enough force to overturn that pressure. I would prefer less effective demand around the world. Uh, I, prefer, I prefer pushing middle and lower classes to a to a lower situation so that they don't, they don't gobble up resources. I'm willing to run with 500 major corporations basically patrolling and, and, uh, and, uh, and consuming around the world. And I don't think, and yes, I'm using financialization and credit uh, to fill the gaps. If I have an effective demand gap, I can use the, the American working class to fill that gap, although I can't do that now. So now I have to run an austerity program. And I understand you as a progressive <clears throat> and the needs of your people. I understand your aspirations, but your aspirations and my aspirations uh, contradict each other. And here we stand, here we stand facing each other. 
with basically a problem of you identifying the particular strategies that I use, and I saying, I'm saying, yes, I, I see that Costas and Giannis and, and Galbraith and, and Stiglitz and everybody has caught on to what's going on, but I am running a big momentum empire machine. I really can't turn and change. I, I talked to jo Dr. Schauble. He, he's not going to, he understands the problem. We understand the problem. You understand the problem. Where do we go from here? Because I can't relent. If we assume for a moment that you're right, that this is the position by people who've got power, and this is the voice of power, if this is it, then that's clear signs of the end approaching. Because a system that realizes that there's a problem, realizes it's backfiring or misfiring or whatever else it's doing and cannot change is doomed. This is one of the more prevalent lessons of history. And I think that if that's what they're coming up with, and you might well, well be right if we read what they're doing and what they're saying, they might come to an end in a disastrous way uh, with the re-emergence of political, social, and other monsters. That's the real danger, uh, much of which we witnessed in the 20th century. Yes, we did. Uh, and of course, Gian Giannis is, of course, I think is an unconscious uh, attempt to forestall that possibility by making a, uh, a, 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 a greater Europe national union or, 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 or initiative in hopes that it doesn't turn autarkic and perhaps that reason and judgment would prevail. But he's fighting, again, he's fighting a huge systemic powerful force, which, which I've outlined. And of course, I'm not sympathetic to that or, or I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. But, but uh, nonetheless, the logic of what is going on is clear and inescapable. And if I'm a I'm a hegemon. I'm saying to myself, I don't know how to let this go. I don't know how to let this go without everything coming apart. And where does that leave me? You see? I think in this context, first of all, we should differentiate between the overall hegemon, if you want to call it that, the United States, and Germany as the junior hegemon in Europe. The policies are not the same. They're not the same. They're not the same. And the outlook is not the same. The United States is a country that has financialized very, very powerfully. It has lost industrial capacity. It has acted as basically buyer of last resort, provided, provided effective demand for significant periods of time for others. And in, in the process, it has managed to lose a lot of capacity uh, and to keep its people um, without any increase in real wages for a, a very long time. Germany has followed a different path, certainly in the last 20 years. It has indeed, similarly to the United States, kept uh, real incomes for the majority of its workforce stagnant. So in that respect, it's similar. But Germany has managed to benefit from this through the monetary union it has created industrially. Germany has emerged as the by, by far the most powerful exporter in the world, sucking in demand from across the world, the opposite of what the United States is done. States has done. So the position of Germany with regard to Europe, to its immediate periphery, and in the world is very, very different to the United States, and their interests are different. And these interests will clash, will clash because 
the, the direction of these two capitalisms is very different. Now, of course, Germany uh, cannot directly compare with the United States in terms of magnitude and um, political, economic and military strength. But Germany in the heart of a kind of Europe that follows German um, or, or obeys German directives is a different story. It's a different story. And I think that's what the calculation is among um, some people in Berlin. Similarly to the United States there, uh, though, um, in this respect, the people in Berlin who might be thinking along those lines do not realize, or if they realize they can't do much about it, that the system they've created in Europe is itself contradictory, is itself crisis-ridden. So, in that regard, we've got a similarity with the United States uh, again. Now, what do you do in that context? Well, your, your policy, of course, uh, as we go down to the micro with you, you know, you've uh, complained about Germany managing its unit labor costs uh, to the point where it does not follow the promulgated policies of uh, common inflation amongst Europe. So it doesn't That's play right. fair with its right. own satellites, uh, That's for, for example. So... That's correct. I mean, G Germany, in some ways, Germany is much harsher with its own satellites than the United States is. Uh, but it's also harsh with its own working class in the first place. It keeps its own working class down. And in this way, it's very harsh with its own satellites. Uh, and it has emerged as basically a huge vacuum. It sucks in demand from across the world and therefore emerges as a very powerful exporter. Now, is this sustainable? It's not. It's clearly not sustainable. And Germany has got a problem what to do. Now, it might try to rearrange the monetary union somehow, create a two-speed union. It might try to create a core and periphery, openly so, uh, and so on. All these options are on the table in Berlin, I'm sure. The prevalent option at the moment is do nothing. Do nothing. Keep going the way we are. Now, what, what do progressives do, though, which is the question you asked me before? Yes. And here, I think we can draw a lesson from the experience of the last two years, which might be of use to the United States too, which is a different set of problems, as I've indicated. The idea that we should create some kind of union of European states, some kind of trans-European movement that would maintain the institutional mechanisms of the monetary union and the European Union, but tweak them from the inside, change them from the inside, make them something else from what they are through a process of contestation. This is an idea that has failed. I'm dead against this idea. This is an idea that was tried by Syriza. That's the biggest lesson from Syriza. Yes, that's yes. exactly what Syriza tried to do, and it failed. The lesson then is, and that's a lesson that has importance also for the United States, where events have progressed now, that for alternative paths, for alternative strategies in Europe, we'll need, we will need a re-establishment of national and popular sovereignty. This is the biggest lesson. Without national and popular sovereignty re-emerging or being reacquired by a series of countries in Europe, not a lot can be done from the progressive side. Well, I mean, Naveen, I mean, Naveen Kosyanis would argue with you that uh, he's afraid of uh, that retrograde movement on the theory that uh, uh, essentially autarky and, and, and confusion and, and strife and fascism would boil through that process. And he is fighting that tooth and nail with a, the pan-European uh, pan 
uh, project, which I've never seen a pin anything ever work out. But nonetheless, <laughs> uh, I understand where, where he's, he's, he's coming from. I think he's wrong. I've told, I've told him that. But, you know, Giannis is Giannis. And uh, uh, so, but let's assume that he will not get uh, enough traction to really make that happen. We can go back to the United States and, and, and look at a, 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 a strategy that has just emerged, whether it's accidental or not. We have a, uh, Donald Trump is the new president who is representing essentially the same constituency that Bernie Sanders was representing, the, the people who lost out in globalization. But here, we're going to have a usurpation of that, uh, of that revolution. We're going to have a diversion of that revolution. And I say that any such thing that happens in Europe will we'll probably follow the same path. In other words, the, the troops that got mauled in the first go-around, who understand that they, they, they felt the pain, uh, they are not going to easily find a champion in a program that would allow them uh, to uh, restore, let's say, the standard of living that they had between 1945 and 1980. Uh, I, I see no, no mechanism. I understand uh, going back to a nationalism and, and rebuilding, uh, even in a Listian way, to a certain extent, without totally throwing away free trade, is a is a good possibility, but I would argue here with Yanni that the egg has been scrambled and it's going to be very difficult to unscramble that egg and go to the basic building blocks that you're kind of heading toward to, to restructure it. Your comments on that? I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that, with that take. Um, I think in this regard, we should take um, a lesson from Polanyi. Polanyi is very important here. Polanyi argued, as you know, that um, we have a swing between the market and the collective in society. Um, and he argued in the interwar years that um, liberalism of the time had moved uh, too much in favor of the market. This created social disruption and social dislocation. And society naturally, inevitably reacted against it. And this took the form of restraining the market and brought, uh, brought out all kinds of political monsters as well in, in the 1930s. I think we're living through a period of this time. Uh, again, I think we've got a reaction against neoliberalism and, as you said, scrambling the egg. Um, the scrambling of the egg is not an irreversible thing in this case, uh, or at least it might involve society chucking the egg out altogether and re-establishing new rules as society has done in the past. And I think that's what we're going through. We're going through uh, a reassertion of anti-market logic, uh, a reassertion of society's desire to live and to have uh, and to operate in ways that are not the impersonal and hostile and cold ways of the market. So I think, that's what's I think that this is going to happen. This is going to take place. The real problem for the left is to propose economic ways and social ways of making that happen in a progressive manner, in a manner that will be in favor of working people and in a manner that will lead to higher incomes and so on. It is perfectly possible to do it in of the course. context of Greece. But what agency can you use to do that? They've dismantled unions. They've dismantled all the things that would embed a market into society, those structures and institutions have been effectively dismantled. And what are the progressives going to do to re-embed 
the market into these uh, uh, into these socially uh, civilized mechanisms that would, uh, would would take off the rough edges of the market. Where are those institutions, and who? Let's start. Sure, sure. That, that, so we now go to the key question, which is the question of the subject: who is going to do all that? Which and we must identify this. But let's first of all agree what it is that we must do, because much of the left and many progressive people until now have not even agreed on what we need to do. And much of that has to do with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, the, the retreat of the left in Europe and elsewhere the last three decades. Not that, I mean, I'm not defending the, the, the countries of the East. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just seeing it as a, as a reality. And much of the left since that time has basically accepted the idea that this is irreversible, it's a law of nature, this is how you run society, this is how you run the economy, there's nothing serious you can do. This was never right, but the left accepted it. What we must do is recapture some of the confidence that we used to have and propose new ideas to people on the basis of the principle of control and regulation. And we can take a lesson from the right in this respect. The right didn't suffer from this weakness that the left suffered from, came out openly and said, I want to do this. And if the market doesn't like it, I will impose my will on the market. The left has lost the capacity to do it. First, then he must reacquire that. Once it reacquires it, then he can approach society and social uh, forces with a different uh, outlook and from a different from a different perspective. That's what's missing at the moment now. Undoubtedly, the organizations of the working class, the organizations of working people and other forces in the United States, in Western Europe and elsewhere, political and social organizations are today in a poor state, very poor state. It's a case of rebuilding. It's a case of rebuilding and reestablishing uh, these mechanisms. And we've seen this in Greece and I've seen it in Britain where I live. Um, it's not an easy task at all. We're starting from a very low base. I don't see an alternative. I've got no easy uh, option to offer you, but I don't see an alternative. It's a task that must be confronted head on right now uh, with clarity. The key thing is clarity. And anyone who talks, from my perspective, uh, of a trans-European project, um, uh, solidarity among the, Euro the European people um, uh, on the basis of the existing institutions, of the European Union and Monetary Union is actually offering bad services because this is not the way to do it. We need to say openly that the mechanisms of the sovereign state actually can be favorable to democracy and can be favorable to uh, working people. We need to say that openly because we've experienced that in Greece and in the rest of Europe. We must start from that. We need to get clarity on this. If you want to do things in Athens, You've got to control the mechanisms of state in Athens. You can't rely on workers in Dublin or in workers in Vienna. Right? This is a this is a major step. If we get clarity on this, if we get agreement on this, a lot of other things will follow and unfold. Um, in the, the same, incidentally, in Britain, the, the British left must come out and say, in view of Brexit right now, that Brexit has happened. There is no going back. What the British left must do is aim to get command over the levers of sovereign power in Britain and begin to use them in the interests of the British working class and the British poor, of course, transforming them at the same time. Okay. All right. Now, but let me 
interject into that. You're, you're kind of your specialty uh, of financialization. Uh, one of the great tactics and strategies that, um, that the establishment has is, uh, is invoking and in, inflicting uh, financialization, not in the only in the traditional ways on corporations, uh, private equity firms and all of that dealing with corporations, but they've also financialized the um, working class. It's, it's monies, the monies that it has and gets from the traditional production process as outlined in you know, traditional left analysis of production and profits. They've now circumvented that and gone directly to the worker and now financialize what he has from the production process, making it all but impossible for him to get leverage and stability in his life. It's a, a fragmentation that's enormous. It's enormously profitable. You've outlined the immense profits due to this financialization. I mean, it's uh, uh, the fact that finance has gone from 2 to 8% of the GNP of most of the major countries. They've closed the loop, not only in controlling the finances of corporations, but the working people uh, who work in the corporations. And it's, it's an efficient, Iron gridlock on it. It draws into the most the most able people in society who work in these professions because it's so lucrative, and this is an iron bound creation of financial money that's that's that has created a class that's not national but truly international. It, its interests are international. It has no national interests, and this, backed up by enormous force and power, is essentially what dictates policy. And, and against that, uh, you're proposing, and uh, Giannis is weakly proposing, a, 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 a rebuilding of uh, working and middle class people, one with a, a, a international attack back, and you as a, as a national rebuilding, uh, rebuilding project, country by country, in hopes that you can stabilize working people. This is a, an immense project against a hegemon, and we'll just call it the, the combined hegemons, who basically straightjacketed everybody into this financial walk that allows very few degrees of freedom. Indeed, this is, uh, from my perspective, the, the dominant feature of contemporary capitalism. The tremendous growth of finance, the penetration of it into areas where it used to go, and particularly into the areas of... Uh, uh, households and individuals, working class uh, families, uh, and the financialization of their own income and their own basic conditions of life. It's unprecedented. I mean, all you need to do is think of the great crisis in the United States, 2007-2009, which broke out because the poorest, most downtrodden, and most discriminated against sections of the United uh, of the of the U.S. working class had borrowed <laughs> by. Um, housing. Now, I didn't say they didn't cause it, but they triggered it off. Now, this would have been impossible in previous periods of capitalism. Now, unthinkable. And yet it happens. Now, it is. It is a straitjacket, and it's a very, very powerful machine, and it seems to be coming back under Trump, or at least the, 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 the first signs are that Trump will give it a new leash, uh, leash of, uh, of life, because um, from about 2007, 2009, this mechanism had actually gone into not quite abeyance, 
but it functioned more slowly. It, it decelerated. It looks as if Trump will give it another boost. We'll have to wait and see, but that's how it looks. In any case, whether it receives a boost, a new boost or not, it is very, very powerful and it is very dominant in politics and in life in the United States. Now I ask you, what option do um, American workers and everyday Americans uh, uh, actually have on this? Very little option, to be honest. You've got to fight against it. I, I see no, uh, there's no way of circumventing it. The enemy is very severe, uh, organized across the front, but you've got no option. And in this regard, what must be demanded, as well as other things, is of course definancialization. Definancialization. Now, when one begins to think of definancialization at the level of the working class, you realize how socially uh, powerful this is. Because, of course, to definancialize, what are you asking for? You're asking for provision of the basic um, facilities and means of life for ordinary people to be cut off from finance. It isn't simply a matter of borrowing. We're not just talking about borrowing. Workers borrow not simply because their income is not high enough, but also because they've got little option of obtaining housing, schooling, um, and the various other things that people need in a way that is separate from private finance. We must cut off that. There is no law that says that private banking must be involved in providing for education for the, for, for the American youth. There's no reason to do that. There is no logic, no capitalistic logic that says this is a necessity. This is what has emerged, allowing in the United States, allowing a lot of people to make huge profits at the expense of the young people uh, in, in the United States. This can change. And definancialization then would involve public provision, social provision of these things, um, the re-establishment of mechanisms of reliable, trustworthy, social provision of these things for ordinary people on a collective and communal basis. It is perfectly possible the United States has got traditions of that as well as uh, private capitalism. And we need to recapture this and therefore push finance back. That's one thing that has to be demanded concretely. Uh, I, would argue, I would argue here that... Um, uh, I would like to see a focus on attacking and taxing a monopoly directly. That all of these, all of these things show up as excess profits, whether it's in corporations, whether it's in land and real estate, these are isolatable end results that you can pretty well calculate the percentage of the GNP that is now flowing to purely monopolistic practices. And if you focused on identifying those sources of monopoly, and you've got a powerful enough movement to say, look, tax this, uh, you would go a long way from relieving to relieve that pressure directly rather than try to indirectly untangle the strands. In other words, if you, if you taxed the monopolies due to finance, uh, due to patents, due to excess compensation at the, at the CEO level and, and so forth, uh, if you taxed land rents, unearned ra land rents, and you, you, you took pieces of that monopoly out and substituted that for your, your provision to run a, a country, I would argue that you would go a long way to relieving the kinds of pressures we are talking about. And it's probably an easier sell to identify the fact that all of these problems end up with excess and unearned 
profits and 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 and, and income. So of course, as as a as a Georgist, uh, uh, old Henry George said, "Tax the land." We would generalize that into taxing monopoly, because you can create monopoly. Uh, you know, in Georgia's time, you had a gold standard. You couldn't create money out of thin air. Creating money out of thin air today is a great monopoly. If you took the crucial uh, the variables of monopoly and started to tax them and, and, and people understood that this is where you could attack the problem neatly and cleanly, you might have a simpler way to push back and educate people on this rather than try to fight the battle case by case, function by function, which leads to confusion and, uh, and, and I could spin that all day long. I could, I could tell stories and convince people that they shouldn't sure. do that, they shouldn't do this. So, uh, your thoughts on basically going right at monopoly as it appears and as it shows up in the accounting books. I have no problem, of course, with a policy that discusses seriously um, the use of taxation on corporate privilege and on uh, monopoly power, wherever that might appear, whether that is in finance or, of course, more generally across the economy. But let's think a little bit more uh, about that in the context of financialization. First of all, with regard to uh, households and individuals, I'm not sure that this is actually bypassing the problem or going about it in an indirect way, because a new society that is better based than the current one would have to become uh, socially understood and socially appreciated by people. And nothing is more direct in this regard than provision of housing provision of education, the, the everyday technology of life. So when I'm suggesting social provision restrengthened in these fields, I'm being very direct about it because that hits um, the mechanisms of power by capital where it hurts uh, and in everyday life. But of course, as you rightly say, there's also big business, big business, which is not necessarily in finance, but in production and in commerce. What do you do there? other than tax, because tax is not enough in my judgment. What we've got in the United States is, of course, financialization of big business. And there the form it takes is quite astounding. Weakness uh, of investment, huge sums of money uh, being held, money capital being held by big business, uh, profits being extracted through possession of money, games being played, and capital being invested, leaked. Um, abroad. The policy that is needed there, in my judgment, is not simply tax of exceptional profits or whatever it is, but definancialization of big business too. You, uh, the United States needs a policy of uh, intervening in the uh, business sector and uh, through the public sector, intervening there and actually creating the mechanisms of mobilizing these monies and restarting investment, definancializing big, big business and boosting investment, boosting investment possibly in infrastructure in the first place, but also in production um, at the same time or subsequently. This is what I understand uh, as a necessary thing in the United States. And that can go with a rebalancing of um, social power, property and control over these huge amounts of money and over their investments that take place. This to me is uh, cutting edge 
intervention uh, in the United States right now and very necessary uh, as that goes. Okay, well, the, argue, the argument with there would be there, I think, is that the very nature of uh, capitalism tends to monopoly. And if it tends to monopoly, then effective demand ultimately gets choked down. If it gets choked down and you have uh, overcapacity all around the world, there's simply no good real investments in, in general for large corporations to undertake other than maintenance and, uh, and hold their market share. There is no real way to redeploy uh, their resources and, and, and start a, a, a real production cycle over, over again, especially when you're running into environmental limits uh, of first order in, in, in the world as it is. So that you almost have a, a, an impossibility theorem here. That uh, you can't you can't break the monopoly. The monopoly doesn't allow you to have effective demand, and therefore you play zero sum games in, in 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 exchanging cash hoards. You ends up with it by derivatives, gambling, or whatever. No good way to start uh, the projects unless the government intervened and in it literally said you must build infrastructure, you must build things that relieve and help the environment. Without that, there there is no mechanism in large corporations to self-generate under, 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 the, uh, under the conditions of monopoly capitalism as they exist to do that. There's simply too much overcapacity and not enough effective demand. Your comments. But in some ways, I've already hinted at that. I don't think that the private sector is capable of definancializing by itself or simply through provision of uh, incentives to do so. Tax is not enough in this regard. Um, what is necessary in the United States, given the tremendous problems the country has uh, right now, is for the public sector to take the initiative and begin the process of definancialization in production and so on actively. It's clear, to me it's clear, that unless the public sector does it, uh, big American business will never do it. Um, now, are there no fields of investment and so on? Look at American infrastructure. The last time I was in the United States, I wasn't terribly impressed by the state of the infrastructure. The United States needs tremendous investment in its infrastructure right now because it's been regressing for decades as the country has financialized. There's plenty that the state can do, plenty that the public sector can do, and actively force big business to definancialize, make big business come off the huge piles of money that they keep. Incidentally, this is the same in Germany. The German state, and in this regard, Germany is similar to the United States. The German public sector should take the initiative and force German big business to start investing in Germany, because they are not, to start investing in Germany and to, to have a program of infrastructure investment in the country, because German infrastructure is also very weak, despite what people believe uh, uh, about Germany. So to me, it's clear and it fits in with the point I made about Polanyi earlier we're at a stage where society and the collective wants to swing back against the market. It's already swinging back against the market, and we know how to do it. There aren't a thousand ways to run an economy. There aren't a million ways to do things. Uh, it's clear, just as the private came back and the individual came back 40 years ago with Milton Friedman and with uh, all the rest of the neoliberals, uh, we need to make sure that it, the pendulum swings the other way and the collective and the uh, public returns and uh, reestablishes itself and changes the social balance. It's perfectly possible. Definancialization uh, of production, definancialization of society. One last thing, if I may. 
when we look at financialization and the current state of the United States in particular, but also other parts of the world, the most striking thing is not so much the power of finance when you begin to look into it, which is tremendous, of course, but it is the absolute dependence of finance on the ability of the state to create money. Financialization and neoliberalism are not the negation of the state. It's a mistake to think of that. They depend on the state absolutely, and in particular, they depend on the state's ability to create money. If it wasn't for the Federal Reserve in the United States creating enormous amounts of money the last uh, five, six years since the Great Crisis, um, there wouldn't have been much financialization in the United States by now. There would have been... Now, what is this money created? That's not private money. This is public money. It's actually a kind of fiat money created against the credit of the American people. It's basically uh, the credit of society. It's basically um, the condensed credibility of uh, American society, the United people, being translated into cash without convertibility into anything of value uh, by law, which is used by big business. And big, by big financial business, well, the United States, the people of the United States, the working class people and others of the United States can use this power. It's about time they used it uh, in their own interests, not in the interests of finance, not in the interests of big business, which is what has happened the last few years, but in the interests of themselves. It's a tremendous power, tremendous power. Uh, and the Fed has demonstrated it. Well, let's use it. Let's use it uh, for the benefit of, uh, of the men. All right, well, thanks. I think it was a, a fabulous interview, actually. Uh, I hope that uh, Greece leads the way out, because if the Greeks can, can exit and rebuild their country on the lines that you talked about, it'll be a wonderful model for everybody else. We're involved in a struggle here. It's not easy no. for, the, for, the, for the reasons that we've discussed. Course, but yeah. I'm hopeful. I'm always hopeful. Um, and in any case, uh, there are storms ahead, it's clear. Storms ahead in Europe, storms ahead already breaking out in the United States. You are in a difficult position yourself. Absolutely. Um, but Carlos, so, it was uh, keep the faith. Well, that's uh, it. Keep the and faith, Carlos. You're a great writer. <laughs> You've got great insight and uh, you're charismatic. And uh, wow, what an interview. We'll do this again. We'll do this again maybe within six months. Maybe. Okay. Thanks very much, and I look forward to it. And keep, you know, keep, keep, keep up the good work. Okay. Take care. Okay. All right. Thanks. You, it was you great. Too. Bye bye now. The best looking economist in the world, right here. This is him. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.